This episode is brought to you by the Grace Enough podcast, where host Amber Cullum and her guests delve into hard truths and the unwavering grace of God while journeying in the kingdom of God here on earth. Listen every week at graceenoughpodcast.com or on your favorite listening app. Welcome to the Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Now, you're making a point, and, and this is where we're going next, uh, about, well, in first century Israel, this is not going to be an issue that comes up. But if we go to the larger Greco-Roman world, and we think about what's going on in in uh Hellenistic culture around which uh, the Christians, who of course early on were mainly Jewish, um, where they're coming from. What is what is the situation that we're dealing with uh, in the larger Greco-Roman culture? Well, generally, they would have viewed things <clears throat> quite a bit different. I think that's one of the problems that we actually have here. They would not have defined things as heterosexual, homosexual, etc. Uh, they would have seen it much more as a who the active person is who the passive person is in these types of things. And only certain people could be in those particular roles. For example, uh, and this would have differed in, uh, to some extent in various places, but uh, <clears throat> first century, a Roman, a Roman male citizen could only be an active individual, whereas a, um, a woman <clears throat> really could only be a passive individual. And for them to break those molds or break those uh, roles, that would be uh, very difficult and challenge really the uh, whole structure of their society. In addition to women, you could have slaves, both male and women, who, men and women, that could be um, uh, passive. And uh, most prominently, and probably most uh, difficult for us to really wrestle with, is it could often be boys as well. Usually they wouldn't be a uh, citizen, especially in Rome, you would not have had that. Uh, but it uh, would not have been uncommon, it would have been quite uh, uh, expected in many cases. And if, go ahead. So this is going on and going on. Uh, more or less regularly in certain pockets of the society. Is that a fair, fair oh, way yeah, to say yeah. it? You would you'd pretty much, uh, if you're looking at a guy who's got a home with an attractive adolescent slave boy, chances are uh, it would be likely, at least in your mind, that uh, they were having some type of relation uh, in that respect. This does actually intersect the Gospels a little bit. Okay. And it has been brought up, um, the centurion mm -hmm. who comes to Jesus with uh, his slave to be healed. Uh, it is quite possible that there would have been a relationship there. And because Jesus does not condemn any activities they're doing, it's sometimes suggested that he's actually affirming uh, one of these same-sex relationships. I think that misses a bit of the point of what's actually going on, but you actually see this argued hmm. on occasions. And, uh, uh, Jesus is more interested in what he's actually doing, more interested in the personality of the boy, and there's a lot we, I the, the welfare of the uh, servant, etc. Interesting. Uh, so what we have in Hellenistic culture is not so much these kinds of uh, hard-line categories about what um, what can be done, because almost anything's being done in some ways. Is that is, Certain things aren't. Yeah. Um, uh, again, I guess... Behind closed doors and nobody knows about, I'm sure everything can be, be going on. But uh, this stuff is interrelated with, uh, you know, the structure of society, mm -hmm. with, um, you know, honor and shame culture, mm -hmm. uh, with um, the role of women 
and really uh, a really low view of women in, in light of what we uh, think of today uh, in many cases. The patronage system, um, this idea of controlling individuals, this all is tied up. It's not a separate category of so sexuality. The so status is more important yes. and function is more important than than gender per se. Is, right. is that be fair to say? Yes, yeah. Okay. Now, having said that, and this is I've set this up on purpose as talking about what's going on with Jew, Jews and Judaism and what's going on in, in Rome and the Greco-Roman world, we come to Romans 1, which is obviously probably the most discussed text um, in the New Testament on this topic, uh, a significant text in which Paul is engaged in in why the nations uh, are in need of the gospel in a very generic kind of way. He'll turn his attention to the Jews in chapter 2. Uh, but in, in, the, in chapter 1, verse 18, down to the end of the chapter, in verse uh, 32, we're in the midst of a discussion about, about the, the state of the world among the nations and how they have exchanged the Creator for the creature and are engaged in a life and in, in elements of lifestyle that show their distance from, from God. It's very, very important that in all of these discussions that we are having, the presence of God and the honoring of God are very much in the background of all these passages. We, we, we do not live in a, in a secularized world in which God is an optional player. Uh, he's very much present, and how we interact with him is a part of this discussion. Um, uh, Jay, why don't you take us through these key verses in Romans, and let me let me get them before people before we uh, before we start. I'm going to get this on the iPad so I can read it, and then we'll we'll discuss these these verses. I'm going to start in verse uh, 24. Uh, Therefore, God gave them over in the desires of their hearts to impurity, to dishonor their bodies among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creation rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, verse 26, God gave them over to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged the natural relations for unnatural ones. And likewise, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed in their passions for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do what should not be done. They were filled with every kind of unrighteousness, wickedness, covetousness, malice. They are rife with envy, murder, strife, deceit, hostility. They are gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, contrivers of all sorts of evil, disobedient to parents, senseless, covenant breakers, heartless, and ruthless. And we've gone on to read because the point here is the entirety of the condition of sin in the nations. And then verse 32, although they fully know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but also approve of those who practice them. So that's our passage. Um, what does it tell us? Um, well, the, the final section that you mentioned there tells you this is pretty serious because they're worthy of death. Mm -hmm. So this is not a, a casual uh, uh, offense or set of problems. So it's very serious, and in some way, um, mimics what was going on in the Old Testament where mm -hmm. you had the capital offense. Um, but 
probably more to the point is up around verse 26. Um, and here it looks like uh, a divine judgment mm. for idolatry. In verse 25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the, creation, the creature rather than creator. And therefore, as a consequence or for this reason, God gives them over mm. um, to um, these degrading passions, exchanging uh, normal, if, if I can use the word normal heterosexual relations for same sex relations. So, this is a part of the divine judgment for idolatry. So this becomes an illustration of one sin among many sins that leave the nations culpable before God. Exactly. And so when we come to verse 32 and we say those who practice such things deserve to die, it, it wouldn't be fair to say we're only talking about what's discussed in verse 27. We would be saying, no, Paul's condemnation extends to the entirety of the list because in part he's building the case on why everyone needs to have their relationship with God restored as opposed to only certain people who engage in certain particular practices. Would that be fair? I think it would be fair. You know. Um, he does. It's a little expansive there when he talks about same-sex relations, but I'm not sure one could probably make a, a big distinction in terms of one's ultimate culpability before God uh, in terms of the other sins. You know, malice and gossip and slanders and haters, those are all make one culpable. Uh, but he, you know, so I'm not sure you can list these um, sins as one more grievous than the other. They're all uh, damning, if you will. Uh, so, I, but anyway, the penalty I think would extend—that uh, is, of deserving death—would include the whole list, all the way from verses twenty-four. And we're talking about a backdrop in which the deserving of death talks about uh, being spiritually separated from God and having the need now to come into a restored life, which, of course, the rest of the book is about mm -hmm. in talking mm -hmm. about how. What Jesus has done and the sacrifice that he's done covers all these sins, uh, can, can remove the guilt and the culpability before God and can bring us into a state where we're reconciled with God. Would that be exactly fair? Right. Exactly right. Now, let's go back up to the passage in question and say, are there, are there any limitations on what's going on here, or um, uh, is uh, – uh, well, let me, let me ask one previous question. Is there any doubt about what's being described here? I, from, I, I don't think so. I think there is a, 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 some sort of a same-sex relation. Uh, occasionally there's some talk that uh, what Paul has in mind is some sort of, of, a, of a degrading or exploitive relationship, uh, particularly with men with boys, and that's what he's opposed to. But then when he talks about women with women, uh, he seems to be uh, – it's a broader category. It's mm -hmm. not just an exploitive relationship with an adult male and an underage boy. Mm -hmm. It would certainly include that, but I don't think you can restrict it to that. As soon as he starts talking, he brings women in, you can see that the, his purview is a little wider than just exploitive relationships. Mm -hmm. and the, Go ahead. It is worth pointing out that uh, – 
women and women would have been a big taboo, generally speaking. Now, again, it probably happened, and uh, there's some things out there, but generally the sources don't talk uh, as much about it in a, and not definitely not in the same way as you have it with men with uh, adolescents and younger uh, boys. But uh, so that would be right there something that uh, probably most everyone would have agreed with at that point. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe that's a way of him getting into the uh, to the argument. One of those things that people will accept. So he's starting with, in, in some ways, the most grievous category, or the one that everyone accepts as a taboo, and then works his way to the places that that might be more culturally debated. Yeah, because women with women would mean somebody would have to take a role of a man. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and I, you know, I look at this passage in verse twenty-six where it says, "For the women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones." That kind of removes any doubt about what it is that we're talking about. Is that fair to say? In terms of uh, in, in in terms of we're dealing with uh, with same sex scenarios. Yes, but I will say that uh, some of the arguments that are brought up mm-hmm. about this would be well, what is natural? Mm-hmm. And then it goes to this idea. Um, yes, it's true. It's natural for you who are attracted to women uh, to be attracted to women. It would be unnatural for you to be attracted to a man. But for somebody who is actually a male attracted to other males, that's perfectly natural. And then uh, with that type of a situation, it would actually be unnatural for a guy with desires for other men to actually try to, uh, you know, have relations with a woman in that case. I just find that's a little bit too complicated for uh, a first century audience. Mm-hmm. And it does seem to be dealing with acts. The question does, mm-hmm. in, the, in those discussions, and I'm going to be very delicate here, um, does physical design anatomical design enter into that discussion in terms of what's natural and what isn't? To some extent, yes, but it's actually quite fascinating because, uh, and it's rather complicated too, we can make a distinction between sexuality, mm-hmm. which is my desire for a specific person, and then gender identity, which is what I choose to be. So foreseeably, um, I was just going to say you, but let's just say uh, <laughs> um, a, a particular man could identify himself gender-wise as female. And that particular man may have, uh, if he's attracted to women, he is actually expressing lesbian desires. And so it's very complicated. Like I say, I, I just can't impose that type of a system upon uh, What you're saying is, world. just to be clear, is what you're saying is, is the way this conversation comes across in modern conversation yes. about the situation has more it's working with more categories and more ways to think about it from a psychological yeah. point of view etc and to think that that would be something that would enter into the mind of someone who's writing in the first century who's writing about these things is unlikely in, in yeah. there's some philosophical discourse going on right, with right. the way people were created and split apart and, and these desires actually happening but again you know for that on a on a more common level would to me seem very difficult would to it, sustain. Would it be fair to say that in the ancient world, uh, and the, the generalization, but we'll go for it and see what happens, um, would it be fair to say that, that generally speaking ancients thought more concretely about some of these issues in the sense of the way in which we are physically designed uh, is designed to be a picture of the way we're to think about the creation? Uh, yeah, as long as we keep it in that context that they aren't working off our paradigm. Right. For them, the active and passive is what's important. Mm-hmm. The roles are what's p- important. The, mm-hmm. uh, you know, as a, that's uh, 
but again, concrete may seem to imply they weren't uh, into as much abstract thought. But the way this is worded, mm-hmm. um, you know, women with women, mm-hmm. men with men, uh, they might not have been thinking specifically the acts as in the forefront. Maybe they were, but they also would have been thinking, well, women with women, that breaks social convention. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, if that's what you mean by concrete, yes. yeah. Well, actually, no, that's not what I mean by concrete. What I'm suggesting is is a very anatomical design. The idea that says that there are some people who are designed one way and some people are designed another, and so the I'm trying to yeah. do this delicately. The <laughs> coupling reflects the oneness. Okay, in very concrete terms, that's natural. That's designed. It breaks down though because. Me, as a citizen male, mm-hmm. I can only be active, mm-hmm. but a male slave can be passive. So in other words, the function, you can think about functioning in a different role, but um, one more question then. Uh, was this scene, uh, let's, t- let's take right or wrong out of it but, um, and, and put it in a different form, was it seen to be a a different kind of relating, if I can say it that way. Would there be a distinction made in what was going on, or would it simply be taken on, on equal moral terms? Again, remembering that we're talking about how Romans think yeah. about this. Well, yeah, definitely, and that's probably worth bringing up, because yeah. on the one hand, you could be, you know, again, hypothetically, and again, I want to make clear that you were going to talk about Athens four centuries earlier, would be slightly different, talk uh-huh. about different things, but generally speaking, I'm trying to uh, go um, with a first century Roman idea mm-hmm. that... Uh, <clears throat> That you would go and uh, as long as you were doing what you functioned and the way you functioned, that was acceptable. Mm-hmm. And uh, to think how I would want to word that in another way, but um, well, let me well, let me take it take it this way. But a Jewish person looking at that, right? W- they, would they look at it the same way? No, and I think Paul's using a Jewish polemic here. Uh-huh. Uh, He's talking about the Roman the, world, the creator and the creature. I yeah, mean, I mean, there's there's a. a um, Divine intent here. There, there's a, a Genesis overlay, I think, to what Paul's doing, or Leviticus overlay. Or, yeah, the yeah. Torah overlay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and when he talks about something being against nature, I think it means, uh, or in line with nature, it's in line with the Creator's intent. Yeah, uh, Genesis two kind of intent. Now, a Roman might say that I have a uh, underage boy and that he's the passive partner. That's not against nature right. the way we define yeah. it. Right. Right. But let me um, go back. I think I, uh-huh. I know what I want to answer now with yeah. that question. Uh, a person could be, let's say he's a 20-year-old mm-hmm. and he's interested or maybe a 25-year-old interested in young boys or going in, in uh, I want to say young adolescent type boys. Uh, but that does not preclude that he's going to get married and have what we would consider relation, you know, heterosexual relations right. for from here on out. They seem to be able to separate maybe what's involved in marriage and what they're going to do and what a good citizen does and what maybe they do before marriage, etc. So the point here is, and the, the, or during, uh, we we have way. spent a lot of time on this on purpose, not to not to park here, <clears throat> but to really get the cultural elements of what's going on. This is culturally. Uh, very much a, a cross-cultural engagement to a certain degree. Yeah. You've got something going on in Rome and in Hellenism on the one hand that is culturally constructed one way. You've got something going on in the Jewish world and theologically 
that's constructed in a different way, mm-hmm. and you are seeing them run into each other yeah. in this passage. Is that a, would that yeah. be fair to say? Yeah. In fact, I think that's why this is so important. Um, this passage is so important for me. This is the one passage I think that uh, um, <clears throat> really makes the point mm-hmm. uh, because. It's easy when you're looking at something and everything's going one particular way in the culture for somebody to just affirm it and go on. It's Mm -hmm. hard to say whether or not there's a critique going on. But in the Roman culture, Mm -hmm. you know, men with uh, other males was an accepted thing. Mm -hmm. So for Paul to actually be drawing upon this, he's not just taking some, oh, I've just grown up as a... In a, as a heterosexual, if you will, and mm-hmm. I know everything else is wrong, like we might do today, mm-hmm. uh, he was in a culture that was dominated by this act of passive, male could, could be with males, etc., in certain situations. And then he applies this text, or a Jewish idea to this. And we know Paul is not necessarily opposed to going against Jewish tradition mm-hmm. in many things. That's right. Uh, but here he does affirm it. So to me, this is a strong, a strong evidence that uh, what Paul's saying here. Uh, one, it's countercultural, mm-hmm. at least to a Roman audience, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, gives it, I think, a lot more um, uh, staying power, if you will, in this argument. So your point is, is that by appreciating the openness of the Roman culture and how freewheeling it was, if I can say it this way, it actually makes more of this passage yeah. than if if it were like, um, well, this is everyone without thinking and blinking says, oh yeah, that's just unnatural. Yeah, and to take an analogy with food, if Paul, you know, came from a Jewish background and he doesn't eat pork, mm-hmm. probably, uh, and he has no problem saying we can eat various other things now. But if he took a passage and said, you know, eating pork demonstrates that the uh, you know, the Roman world is corrupt. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it would seem to be that there's something important there because he knows that everybody uh, can go and get poor. This episode is brought to you by the Grace Enough podcast. I am its host, Amber Cullum. Each week, I sit down with a guest to discuss hard truths and the unwavering grace of God they've experienced while journeying in God's kingdom here on earth. You'll hear from guests like Jen Wilkin, Jamie Ivey, Andy Crouch, and Scott McKnight. Listen to these conversations and more by searching Grace Enough Podcast on your favorite listening app or by visiting graceenoughpodcast.com. Well, uh, so uh, just to drive the point home, the point that you're making in the end is is that even though we're dealing with a cultural clash, the point that Paul is making is designed to to be transcultural. That he's dealing yeah. with something that, from the standpoint of God, uh, applies to cultures no matter what. And so this is part of the culpability yeah. that people have because they have this kind of approach to things. Yeah, and Paul's probably utilizing. Uh you know, he uses men and women here, uses the adjectives, would probably go back to Genesis mm-hmm. to allude there. He doesn't say husband and wife. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He says male and female. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, that um, should echo in uh, at least some readers' ears yeah. of uh, that original creation. Uh, if I can second what Joe said, and I think, I think I, I'll try to. Um, I don't think Paul defines this idea of functioning according to nature or, or not according to nature culturally. Mm-hmm. He's defining that in terms of uh, the Old Testament, in terms of Genesis. That that determines what's contrary to nature and 
and uh, with nature. It's, so in turn, according to creation, if yes. you want to think of it that way. And, yes, and, and he, he also doesn't define it, which I think we do more commonly today, psychologically. Mm-hmm. Right. Psychologically, <clears throat> I am uh, a, a, a woman caught in a man's body mm-hmm. or something. Uh, I don't think Paul's defining functioning naturally in terms of psychological terms, mm-hmm. where we might say, well, it's against my nature to play the role of a male, because mm-hmm. I'm really a woman. I need uh, It's against nature for me to do that. I don't think Paul's thinking in terms of psychological categories. He's thinking in terms of creative categories and God's original intent, uh, not in terms of how I view my makeup or my gender identity or sexual identity. Okay, that uh, I think we've we've uh, worked our way through that passage. Let's go to uh, the others. I'm going to pair a couple of passages because we're running <coughs> long on time. Um, and uh, the two passages I want to pair are First Corinthians six nine, and then First uh, Timothy one ten. What these two passages share is they both uh, uh, discuss issues in relationship to the presentation of vice lists of one kind or another. So I think we can pair them together and and, and move in this kind of a way. Um, I would say after the Romans passage, the second most cited text that we get in this discussion out of the New Testament is this 1 Corinthians 6 9 text. Um, again, I will read it um, uh, out of the Net Bible and uh, starting, I will just read with verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. The sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, passive, and I'm going to I'm going to pull the word homosexual here. A passive, it says homosexual partners, but passive partners and practicing partners, I'll read it that way, um, uh, be at the active partner. Uh, thieves, the greedy, drunkards, the verbally abusive, the swindlers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Some of you once lived this way, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God, and then it goes on. Now we've got again a vice list. I, I think it's fascinating that we always find this discussion not in isolation, but always tied to other conversations about other kinds of sin. Um, uh, and and uh, and what we have here are are two terms that I think we're going to have to talk about: uh, malakoi and uh, arsenokoites. Uh, so we've got two words here, one of which translates, I want to be very literal, soft, if you want to think of it that way, and the other of which literally is, is the com- combination of two words, uh, male and bed, <laughs> okay, um, just to show you the difference between the terms. I actually think that in this case, thinking literally about what the word pictures are helps you to understand sort of what the words are getting at. Um, so in one case, uh, in the picture of the soft, I've got uh, uh, what what is translated oftentimes as passive, the person who is not the active player. And in the other case, we've got the active or the dominant figure that's being uh, described. So with that as the background, what does this passage have to tell us? And you teach 1 Corinthians, Jay, so uh, you get this one since okay. we picked on Joe last time. And uh, um, and tell us what's going on here. Well, I, the first thing I'd want to mention is what you'd said. You know, you have another list. Mm-hmm. 
And interesting, I think for the third time in the list, you get a very severe punishment or, mm-hmm. th- or threat. You will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Or is it the kingdom of, of God? God. Yeah. But, but at any rate, the point still stands. I mean, violators, this is very serious. Uh, and probably the second thing I, I would say is uh, this is in a list. Oftentimes the discussion goes uh, about inclination or uh, psychological makeup. This is These terms are in a, a passage where there's a lot of behavioral, active sort of phenomena. You know, you're a drunkard, you're a coveter, you're a viler, you're a swindler. It's in a list of, uh, of actions. So I'm not sure Paul's really talking about some sort of psychological makeup of individuals. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting that the word that comes before the two terms that we're discussing is the word adulterer. Hmm. And uh, I know that in some of the blog exchanges I've had on this issue with people who are um, defending same-sex lifestyle in one way or another, um, and they're making the psychological point, well, I'm made this way, or I have an inclination in this direction, you know, I like to make the point, well, I may have an inclination that I'm cap- quite capable of thinking about having sex with other women. You know, I may have that inclination, but that doesn't mean I act on that inclination and that I, or, or that that gives me the right to act on that inclination. And so uh, this is a case where I think the nature of the list may help us think through what it is that's being dealt with in the scripture. And what's being dealt with in the scripture is. Um, playing out on the inclination or acting on the inclination as opposed to simply being in a certain place emotionally or having a certain kind of proclivity. I think many of us have proclivity. I mean, I think of Jesus' passage on the Sermon on the Mount where he talks about, you know, it's not adultery, it's lust that's the problem. Well, that nails most of us. <laughs> and so, um, uh, and what he's showing is the standard that, that says the heart that is really aligned uh, with God does so in a way that, um, that doesn't just simply say, well, I have this inclination, so I have the right or the entitlement to go there, but it thinks through uh, how I deal with inclinations that I may, that I may have. Hmm. Uh, Joe, you have anything you want to add to the 1 Corinthians 6 passage? Well, I, um, again, I think these are real difficult to pinpoint what <clears throat> terms mean in these types of lists. Romans 1 is so much easier because there's description going on. Uh, but again, I think uh, sometimes our translations will seem like they're coming from, a, again, our modern perspective of uh, hetero-homosexual breakup, and they'll see uh, passive with the molecoy, passive receptors, to, mm-hmm. and then uh, active on the, uh, the other term. Uh, and I just want to add a couple things. One, I think from the ancient perspective, it might be a little easier to see the soft translation. I like the effeminate uh, translation because the Romans were very, very opposed to men who would uh, do things that look like a woman. That was very negative. And of course, that would include taking a passive role. Uh, but it was more uh, than that. So this is a broad term is your point. Right, right. Yeah, just like when we, I, the analogy I like to use here is the term pornea is a broad term for sexual immorality. It can cover a lot of things, yep. but it covers adultery. Yep. I mean, but it's more than that. Yep. Uh, now, I, now, if you like contra, I'll, I might push back on okay. you a little bit. Okay. Well, let me finish. Right, but okay. I also like this uh, translation a little bit better, too, because if you say passive homosexual, um, Again, passive same-sex partner. You're primarily talking about 
you know, younger people, younger boys. When I again, boys, um, you know, about the start of adolescence to a little bit of adult, you know, up to a start of puberty. You're up certainly including that right. group, and that would be the, that would be the what you'd be thinking of. I would think mm-hmm. normally when you're talking about this group of individuals, and I just don't see uh, in that case uh, as, as well as them really being able. Um, to have much to do in some of these cases, especially if they were, you know, a slave boy or something like that. And so uh, a category that is primarily directed at a uh, powerless group I find to be uh, problematic. And again, I think from a from the perspective of um, the ancient world, that would have been a little bit more understandable because they aren't making uh, both those distinctions uh, like we are. Jay? Well, I, I'm yeah, I, I appreciate that. I'm just in in being paired with uh, the, the two terms the, the malacost the soft and the arsenokoites the the man better i i tend to think them uh, it, it's likely in my thinking they're being used together they're paired they're paired uh now perhaps not but yeah. uh i kind of favor some of the recent translations that will will not define those two terms individually, but will translate them something like men who have sex with men. And, and they're not isolating the two terms. Uh, they're the, rendering both of them to, with that phrase. Yeah. 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 Again, I see this as a natural homosexual, heterosexual distinction um, way to translate it. Yeah. Because we're coming from it. That's the way we're viewing this thing. And right. so, yeah, naturally, how do these fit? And then it comes, and again, I don't see that as uh, valid uh, in the ancient world. Mm-hmm. And I will note that that other word is really difficult to translate, men betters. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, uh, I just want to clarify because it's easy for us to be accused of an etymological fallacy or something here yes, because, very much so. uh, you know, you know, peanut, well, I guess, uh, something like, you know, Understand has nothing to do with under has nothing to do with stand butterfly and uh, but in this case I, I would like to defend the the translation although um, <clears throat> it might be intentionally ambiguous that it we don't know if it's active or passive by men betters we assume it's active but it could be both ways it's not a very commonly used word uh, it first appears around this time some may even think it first appears by Paul yeah. but uh, um, there's you know again without with limited data we don't know but. In light of that limited data, and in light of these types of terms, like man and bed, bringing them together, I do think there is some justification for doing this type of thing methodologically, uh, despite the fact that I think we need to be careful and sensitive to issues of uh, uh, exegetical fallacies, if you will. I think it's interesting to note that the Net Bible, in, in translating this in particular, has managed to put notes for each one of these terms. <laughs> so uh, it, it shows you. Uh, the nature of the issue. I think that it's important, again, to put this in the context of the larger point. This is part of a larger vice list in which many things are being mentioned, uh, and um, all of them uh, are, are, uh, are, san- are acts that are sa- being sanctioned and critiqued and rebuked by Paul in this context. And given hope for, too, in, such re- in verse uh, mm-hmm. uh, 11, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. Yeah, the whole point is that, again, as we saw in Romans, if we were to have read on in Romans, this can all be uh, overcome and, and, and transformed and, and impacted by what it is that Jesus is able um, to do for us. Okay, let's go to uh, the First Timothy passage, the First Timothy 
uh, 1, and then we have one more passage after that. Um, so 1 Timothy 1 and verse 10, uh, and again, we've got um, uh, our, our terms here. Let me get this in context. It says, I'm verse 8, but we know that the law is good if someone uses it legitimately, realizing the law is not intended for a righteous person, but for lawless and rebellious people, for ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and the profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers. Uh, this has been rendered sexually immoral people, uh, the term here, and the term here that we've got is a, is a, uh, a, 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 a fused term, if I can say it that way. It's, well, sexually immoral people practicing homosexuals, kidnappers, liars, perjurers, in fact, for any who live contrary to sound teaching. So we have the immoral in general to start off verse 10, and then we have our term coming back that we saw in 1 Corinthians uh, 6, 9, the second term of the two that we were talking about earlier when we had the soft and then whatever we do with the with the male betters to keep it uh, – keep the term uh, fairly literal here. Um, uh, and, you know, just – if I can jump in real quick, uh -huh. those are the two terms – I mean, those two terms mm – -hmm. That have been combined here mm -hmm. are, are the the two terms used in the two Leviticus texts in the Greek, yeah, yeah, and but they're separated uh, in Leviticus. Now I say, that, of course, Leviticus is written in Hebrew, but when it's translated, translated into in the Greek, Septuagint, what we call the Septuagint, yeah, the Greek it, Old Testament translation, uses, uh, which is an ancient translation, it uses those two words separately mm -hmm. both times. It uses them in Leviticus 18, and then it uses them both again in Leviticus 20. And then in the Corinthians text and in the Timothy text, they're combined. Mm -hmm. They're pulled together. So, and so your point, I, I take it, is is that it, it could well be that the term that we're getting here for the actions being described is alluding back to Leviticus 18 I, uh, and Leviticus I, I think 20? Al almost certainly. Okay. This seems to be – Paul likes to – Dr. Fenton over there is – I'm not saying anything. He's pushing back on that. But Paul loves this, this section of Leviticus, and, and he likes to use it. And this – by most people's count, this is the first time this one particular word's used. And a lot of people propose, and I think with some fairness, that Paul's coined the term here. Coming out of Leviticus, he's – Pulled these two terms together and coined a new phrase based on the use. And of we Leviticus. see him using in First Corinthians, and then we see him using in First Timothy, and, and we won't get into a discussion. It's another podcast on who's the author of First Timothy <laughs> is. So we'll because we'll, some people would say, well, this isn't Paul. This is the Pauline school or whatever. But uh, we're aware of that. Um, but uh, no, there's no doubt that this is the same term being used in a fairly similar kind of way, really, in relationship to First Corinthians. Whatever you're going to do with First Corinthians six is likely what you're going to do with First. With First Timothy one, we're in a vice list. We're in the same kind of situation. We're in a law righteousness contrast uh, context, etc. So we're doing much of the same things in the two passages. Fair? Yeah, fair, definitely. Okay. Uh, one more passage, um, and this is outside of Paul. Now we're in in Jude, chapter seven. I guess it's appropriate to to end up here in in many ways because it takes us uh, by going to Jude. We're going to go back to Sodom at the same time. So we, we get to we get to kind of circle the wagons uh, in our discussion. Um, Jude 7 is in a, in a context in which a list of uh, sins that God has judged are being 
presented. Uh, verse 5 of Jude, and now I desire to remind you, even though you've been fully informed of these facts once for all, that Jesus, having saved uh, the people out of the land of Egypt, later destroyed those who did not believe. You also know angels who did not keep their present domain, but abandoned their own place of residence. He is kept in eternal change and utter darkness, locked up for the judgment of the great day. That's the second sin. And now we come to the Sodom and Gomorrah. So also Sodom and Gomorrah and the neighboring towns, since they indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire in a way similar to these angels, are now displayed as an example by suffering the punishment of, of eternal fire. And uh, the, the, um, the description here is actually uh, rather generic uh, in terms of the language that's used. So, um, uh, so really, all we're doing is alluding to Sodom and Gomorrah and basically saying, well, whatever was wrong and what happened at Sodom and Gomorrah, that's what God uh, judged and, and, and dealt with. So um, that was a situation when we discussed it that we said, well, this is actually a complicated situation. This is a forced uh, forced rape situation, uh, and so it's it's not quite in the same category as, as some of these other passages that we've ended yeah. up talking about. Um, Bear? Yeah, I, I hate to say it, but I kind of like the um, what the Queen James does here uh -huh. a little bit. Not necessarily a translation, uh, but um, I see a similarity with what Hebrews does with mm -hmm. uh, with some of the Old Testament passages. Mm -hmm. I don't think this is necessarily a grammatical historical uh, discussion of the Genesis text mm -hmm. like you would have done, uh, but just as Hebrews notes that Abraham is uh, you know going to offer Isaac but believes he's going to be resurrected, which you can't really get from the uh, Hebrew text very well, uh, I think here he uses just this other flesh. Uh, readers would know that these individuals were angels, mm -hmm. uh, and therefore, uh, maybe what's uh, what they were uh, looking back at was this relationship uh, where almost species crossing mm -hmm. taking place here. And I, um, I don't think you know the the text itself has necessarily always been used in uh, same-sex context anyway. So this is another one. We've gone through passages and we've said, well, Genesis 9 really doesn't belong in the database and in, 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 in this discussion in many ways. Uh, the Genesis 19 operates on the edge because it's a, a particular kind of forced situation. And here Jude is just alluding back in a general way to that and he's using the the the, the cross-species development is a part of the equation, so that ends up being a complicated text as well. So when we boil it all down, uh, what we end up with are um, th three or four central passages on this particular conversation, yeah. and that would be the Leviticus 18.22, the Leviticus 20.13, uh, the Romans 1.26 through 32, and the 1 Corinthians uh, 9 passages. Yeah. Those are really the four texts out of the eight uh, that relate um, to this conversation in a way where uh, the other factors aren't so complicated that we can't know whether those texts relate to the conversation or not. Fair yeah. enough? Fair enough. Well, gentlemen, we've uh, certainly spent some time in these texts, and, uh, and uh, we hope that the walk through these passages has been helpful in using the backdrop of how someone coming at it from a completely different angle would, would engage the topic has been a helpful way in to think about how to uh, talk about these passages. Um, 
We appreciate you all um, listening in uh, with us and listening to the passage, and we thank you for uh, being at the table with us again, and we hope to have you back soon. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well. This episode was brought to you in part by The Truce Podcast. The new season examines the connection between some evangelicals and the Republican Party with the help of world-class historians. Subscribe to Truce in your podcast app or listen at trucepodcast.com.